This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Marcus Golding. I'm going to be your host for today's episode. And today we're talking about digital humanities. We have an excellent guest to talk about this topic with us today. Uh, His name is Albert Palacios. Albert, how are you? I'm doing well. Yourself, Marcus? I'm doing well. I'm very happy to have you here. I think that you have very interesting things to share with us today. So before starting, jumping into the questions, I'm going to introduce you to our audience. So Albert Palacios is the Digital Scholarship Coordinator at the Lilas Benson Latin American Studies and Collections at the University of Texas at Austin. In this role, he collaborates with faculty, students, librarians, and Latin American partners to develop digital scholarship initiatives, including public lectures, curriculum design, workshops, and digital humanities projects. He holds advanced degrees in architecture, information science, and Latin American studies, and has a doctorate in history, focusing on publishing networks in the 16th century Mexico. He also co-directs several digital humanities projects, including um, the National Endowment for Humanities project entitled Enabling and Reusing Multilingual Citizen Contributions in the Archival Record, and also a similarly funded project called Unlocking the Colonial Archive, Harnessing Artificial Intelligence for Indigenous and Spanish American Historical Collections. This is, by the way, one of the initiatives that we will be discussing today. And he's also participating in another project uh, uh, called International Primeros Libros de las Americas Project. So as you can all see, uh, Albert has a lot of experiences in different digital humanities projects. So to start, Albert, I I want to ask you some questions about yourself. So basically, where are you uh, originally from and what is your current profession? Yes, so I'm actually originally from, I'm a a son of the border, as as they would say. 
Um, I am originally from El Paso, Texas, right at the border of uh, Mexico and the U.S., uh, right on the easternmost tip of Texas. Um, specifically, I'm from Socorro, Texas, which is a small um, a city right next to uh, El Paso. Um, and I've, I want to say 16 years ago, I moved to Austin for um, architecture and my undergraduate education, and I ended up staying here and loving it. Um, you know, through my years here, besides uh, going uh, through various uh, graduate programs uh, or academic programs more, more broadly, um, I ended up really going into um, archives and museums, uh, specifically archives. Um, but nowadays you see that archives are blending more into the museum, gallery, and library spaces, right? And so um, I started my my uh, my trajectory uh, at the Harry Ransom Center when I was a graduate student in the School of Information. Um, and that's where I was really, I was introduced into the digital humanities, um, which um, you know, initially it was it was primarily focused on digitization of collection materials, um, doing some preservation work. Um, but towards the end of my experience there, I was working with students to build uh, digital um, exhibitions that uh, brought digital collections into the academic realm, into the interpretive and presentation realm. And so, um, <clears throat> at that point, that's what really um, piqued my interest, right, in in digital humanities more broadly. Um, and that eventually led me to the job here at Lila Benson Latin American Studies and Collections uh, to lead their digital scholarship program here. Well, that's fascinating, Albert. And one thing that I find very interesting is that you were interested initially in architecture, but you transitioned to history and eventually to digital, or, and, and you incorporated your passion for history to digital humanities. So what drew you to history in the first place? Um, and then to the intersection between humanities and technology. I've always been interested in history. Actually, when I was in high school, um, and one of the reasons why I went into architecture was um, we have um, a mission, a Spanish colonial mission uh, in Socorro, Texas. And um, part of my high school experience is, was with um, a group uh, called Cornerstone Communities, um, and they were, they were uh, restoring that mission. Um, so through my summers, uh, or at least for at least one summer, a couple of months, we were building, uh, we were creating Adobe bricks, right? And um, we were also uh, helping with uh, bringing those up into the mission walls to restore some of the deteriorated work. Um, so since then, I've been really fascinated with, with uh, architectural history. Um, and so that's what drew me into architecture um, at UT. Once I was there, um, I started really getting into historic, historic preservation, um, and then that directly, um, I, the, the idea of how culture manifests itself in design uh, really interested me. Um, and so it went, you know, I went into anthropology, archaeology, thinking about uh, the, uh, the architectural foundations, right, of culture, the footprints are left behind. Um, and then eventually that really got me into museum design. Um, I started looking at these, these Spanish missions and how in and of themselves they were, um, as, as uh, scholars have called them, right, theaters of conversion. And so the idea of using um, architecture to be able to enculturate people, to be able to um, 
essentially create a phenomenology, right, that enables colonialism really interested me. And that in a, in, in a weird way, right, connected me to museums and how as a curator, as a, as a designer, you can start creating spaces that help people um, connect more intimately um, with the past, right, and, and trying to um, provide a space, right, where not only are you seeing an object or a manuscript, but being able to have uh, other senses influence how you connect to cultural heritage. And so that really got me going, you know, it, it got me into that uh, vein of my uh, academic pursuit. Um, and as I talked to her, as, as I said before, with the Harry Ransom Center, I started really looking at digital technologies and how um, the digital space uh, could be um, another realm for you to connect with history, with cultural heritage uh, in a completely different way, in a way that sometimes is, you know, you're not allowed to um, uh, work with materials physically in a, in a particular way, right? So for example, and I always give this example, you know, you can be looking at different books and in order for you to do comparative analysis to look at the materiality, right, you really can't go tearing pages out of a book, right, to be able to do that sort of comparison. And so technology allows you to decontextualize materials, um, well, not decontextualize, but be able to manipulate them in a way that helps you see other patterns uh, in history um, in a way that you sometimes might not be able to do in, in person, right? I wouldn't be able to take a book from the British Library over to the um, Archivo General de la Nación in Mexico, right, to be able to do that comparative analysis. So digital technologies really allows us to do that sort of work um, without endangering the cultural heritage. And so that's where I got really interested in the nexus of the application of digital tools, um, applying it as a different lens for the analysis of culture and history. No, that's great, Albert. I think your background is very interesting. I actually, you know, I, I took some courses at the architecture department in in uh, uh, cultural heritage uh, preservation. Um, so I was wondering that if in that capacity, have you ever since collaborated with the uh, architecture department in digital uh, projects, like digital digital recreation of of spaces, for example? Actually, as a matter of fact, yes, we've had. We actually um, were very fortunate to have um, an endowment that helps to support uh, fellows and scholars uh, throughout Latin America and the US to be able to do uh, a variety of explorations using cultural heritage and digital technologies. And one of these fellows a couple of years back, um, Andrea Alvarez, who was a graduate student at the School of Architecture at UT, the University of Texas at Austin, uh, she actually had uh, that project in mind. And so we have in the collection a uh, 17th century manuscript created by um, uh, uh, Carmelite Friar. Um, he was an engineer, uh, an architect, a designer, and he primarily, uh, at least in the early 1600s, he primarily focused on uh, the, the Sagüe of Mexico trying to drain the valley of, the valley of Mexico. Um, so a lot of his efforts were uh, devoted to that, but for the most part, he's known for uh, the conventional designs that he produced for the order uh, itself. And so um, in this manuscript, we have um, beautifully, richly um, created drawings, uh, many of them which were focused on uh, Mudejar, 
uh, feeling patterns, uh, which is uh, it, it's a, a Middle Eastern pattern of interlocking. Um, it's essentially a wood lattice, right? That is then applied to ceiling structures um, in uh, in convents and in churches. And so this particular student was really interested at seeing how um, these uh, intricate patterns came to be. And so part of her goal was to not only uh, be able to reconstruct what that workflow was by looking at other collection materials, but then also uh, did a 3D printing of that structure. And it was quite fascinating what she came up with um, and being able to understand um, the logic uh, and, and the workflows behind creating such intricate uh, patterns in 17th century Mexico. No, that's great. And that shows us that there's a lot of a lot to do in that intersection between humanities and, and technology. And in that regard, I, I want to uh, go to the main topics of this episode and start with, I think, one of the most fascinating projects you're involved right now um, called the Unlocking the Colonial Archive Project. So I want you to tell us what is this project? Uh, about why is this project so important and yeah explain to us what it consists of yeah so the um the unlocking colonial archive project it's uh it's it's uh, an international collaboration um that we are leading with uh, partners in the united kingdom uh, specifically dr patricia murieta flores and dr javier pereda um, at lancaster university as well as the john moore livermore Liverpool uh, Moore University. Um, we uh, and uh, my 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 our principal investigator here at UT Austin is Kelly McDonough, Dr. Kelly McDonough, who is professor in Spanish and Portuguese. Um, I won't, you know, and the reason why I started with that is because it's uh, it's such a massive project, such a massive undertaking that uh, it takes um, that involves quite a quite a few scholars and there's a long list uh, I'm not going to go through it right now uh, for the uh, for the for this particular um, interview um, but I do want to invite people to check out uh, unlocking um, the archive.com that's where they'll see uh, the team which is much broader um, as well as our collaborators for helping us with uh, producing materials that we need to be able to accomplish what we're setting out for um, so this particular project it's um, it's funded by both uh, uh, the the National Endowment of the, for the Humanities as well as the AHRC which is the equivalent in the United Kingdom the objective with this project is to try to uh, leverage the potential of machine learning tools um, in uh, a colonial corpus, particularly um, manuscripts, but we're also looking at indigenous uh, maps, um, not only at the collect, primarily the collections at the Benson Latin American collection, but then also we're looking at uh, some other digitized collections uh, specific, specifically the Fondo Verde Cholula, which is um, physically uh, held and preserved in Puebla, Mexico. Mexico. And then we're also working with uh, Mapilu, which is a digitized uh, corpus of maps that is preserved at the Archivo General de la Nación in Mexico. 
Now, the objective, as I mentioned, is to leverage uh, machine learning tools. And specifically what that means is that we are trying to create machine learning models so that we can predict uh, handwriting styles or text, right? Um, we can create models that we can then apply to other manuscripts that have not been transcribed so that the machine can automatically identify and extract the text that is in uh, handwritten documents. So it's very similar to what many, many people might know as uh, OCR or optical character recognition software, except this is particularly focused on uh, handwritten text. And so um, we have been using Transcribers, which is uh, the leading tool in this in this realm, emerging realm of HTR or handwritten text recognition. We're using that tool to be able to create these models that are very specific to uh, Spanish colonial handwriting. Um, you know, we're still working. It's been a year into the project. Uh, part of what that entails is us creating transcriptions that are um, created manually, um, and those are the transcriptions that we use to train the um, the the program with to then be able to apply that model onto other texts. So that's phase one of what is a three-phase project. The second phase, um, we're about to start actually. Um, we are using another tool called TagTog, and that tool allows us to annotate text. And the idea is, is um, similar to having transcriptions that are manually produced, we are manually encoding um, related manuscripts or texts that have already been transcribed. Um, we're encoding them, and the idea is to teach the tool to uh, learn the tags that we're using, learn the words and the structures that we're using, so that later on we can apply it to another manuscript, um, manuscript text, and it could automatically recognize those tags and those structures to then extract that information. So that's phase two. And with that one in particular, what we are interested in is we're trying to see if we can automate the extraction of metadata or the, the key information in a particular uh, manuscript that we can then use to be able to publish that material in our digital repository. And the last part, very briefly, um, we are using uh, computer vision uh, technologies to be able to um, identify and uh, well, identify uh, topoglyphs uh, in indigenous, manus uh, indigenous manuscripts, but then also maps, um, be able to identify those and then also extract them from those texts. Now, those two phases um, are uh, colleagues at the University uh, uh, the United Kingdom that are actually leading the way in those two phases, uh, given their expertise. No, that's that's great, uh, Albert, and especially what you mentioned about the, these soft, well, about these two softwares. Uh, Transcribus and TechTalk. Um, Transcribus because I think it's been um, it's been uh, employed a lot in different places, especially for of, of course colonial records, but also for medie medieval records and other kind of uh, writings um, of the early modern era and and before, right? And, uh, but as well, uh, the, the Tech Talk uh, technology, I'm less familiar with that one, but I think is very helpful if that technology can, uh, or it's very yeah, helpful in, in the sense of uh, extracting, helping in, in, in extracting the, the metadata and make it, it an automatic uh, process, because that's also one of the most burden, burdensome um, aspects of these uh, digital projects. Um, so I was 
so I, I find all of this uh, interesting. And from what I understand, the University of Texas is participating mostly in the first uh, phase uh, or, or stage, which is the automatic transcription, right? Yes, that is correct. So the NEH, the funds that we're, we're getting from the NEH are specifically funding that first phase. Um, you know, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that we have all the digital assets in our servers. And so it facilitates some of that work. And that's also some, uh, we had started working with Transcribus previously, specifically with um, with some of our assets or some of our contributions to the Primeros Libros project. Um, and so we had already uh, established some of that workflow. Um, and also part of what we're trying to do, right, is not only create these models, uh, but then also apply it to the rest of the colonial holdings in the Benson so that we can then be able to publish those in various repositories, uh, one of them being Dataverse, which is a data repository. We're putting our um, the text, the raw text there so that any scholar can go and be able to download those and be able to um, do uh, reuse them for digital humanities projects. And then on the other hand, we're also uh, bringing in these PDFs that have the overlaid text into our collections portal for those who are just looking for the digitized manuscripts so they can also find it there. And so for us, you know, we're able, because we're connected to all these systems, um, it's been part of our digitization workflows. Um, and so that's why we've taken the lead in that first um, phase of the project. Interesting. And you mentioned the Primeros Libros de las Americas project. What is the project about? What kind of sources uh, are you using or, or, or what are you using in that project? Yes, so the Primeros Libros Project, it's an international collaboration of over 30 institutions throughout the world. Um, the objective is to try to bring together all the existing um, copies of imprints produced in Mexico and Peru before 1601. Now, this project you know, has been going on for 10 years now, um, and we co-coordinated with uh, La Fragua Library at the Benevrita Universidad Autónoma de Puebla and also the Sterling Library at Texas A&M University. And so uh, that particular project, and actually we're really excited um, that this past December, we were able to launch the new uh, iteration of that um, particular digital collection, which you can check out at www.primeroslibros.org. Um, and so part of that collaboration, right, besides being able to create a digital collection, we're applying these other tools to be able to extract those texts for comparative studies. We've also, with this new instance, we are incorporating um, other digital humanities tools that are related, uh, or projects, sorry, that are related, um, including one that is related to um, firebrands or marcas de fuego, uh, another one that is mainly focused on the engravings uh, within these books. Uh, and then we're also incorporating other tools uh, to facilitate comparative analysis like a Mirador, be via Mirador viewer uh, in that platform. Great, great. And let's uh, go back to Transcribus. And for those that are new to that um, open source software, um, let's explain to them how, how it works. For example, I have a colonial text handwritten, how does transcribers know what the text says and how it is able to translate, uh, transcribe, sorry, the uh, material? How does that work? Yeah. So transcribers, and I'm going to give you a brief overview, okay? I'll try to not be so technical. Um, so transcribers, what it requires from you is um, at least uh, 60 to 80 pages, um, 
of, of um, transcribed material. Okay, let's say, for example, we have uh, a diary, right? A diary that is 300 pages, right? So you manually, um, what transcribers request is for you to create what are called ground truth transcriptions. And what that means, essentially, you're manually transcribing and you're making sure that you are transcribing exactly what you see on the image, okay? Um, once you create those 60 pages, of transcription, then you're ready to start working with transcribers. So um, what you do, right, essentially just create a, a high uh, resolution PDF, right, of the material, you upload it. And the first thing that you need to do is you need to um, conduct a layout analysis. And what this is, is uh, transcribers essentially runs um, a program that tries to identify lines of text um, within the page that it's seen. Okay, and so uh, the resulting image is the manuscript page, right? And you see that each line of text has um, not only a baseline, which essentially tells the program this is where the text is running, right? This is the the, the bottom of the of the text, and then it provides uh, essentially a, a little area that encompasses it. So it tells us that these are roughly the boundaries of where that text is on the page. Okay. Once you have that, then you input your uh, ground truth transcription. So you literally just copy and paste uh, into those regions. Um, and essentially what you're doing is, or what the program is doing, is that it's matching up the letters that you're providing with the pixels that are represented within those particular areas that you're seeing um, that, that have resulted from the layout analysis, right? And so the more words you give it, the more it's it starts to learn, right, what the composition of the letter A is, for example, the letter, the letter L, right, is. And also what it does, it starts learning the composition of words, right? How, what letters make up a word, right? And so the idea is it starts learning from that, those compositions so that they can then, whenever you run the model you create um, onto a text that hasn't been transcribed, it starts seeing those pixels, how they come together into letters, how they come together into words to then be able to identify and extract it. Um, and so, yeah, that's 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 pretty much how it works, right? Again, the more you do, uh, the more you provide it in terms of ground truth, the, the higher the accuracy rate will be. Um, and one thing that we're doing with the project is that we are feeding in a variety of text and we're doing what's called uh, iterative training. We're doing small batches. Um, we're, we're training the model to recognize a particular number of pages and then we're applying it onto, let's say, 30 more pages. We're using those, we're correcting them, we're adding them again to train another model and so on and so forth so that the accuracy gets uh, better and better. Great. Albert, and uh, one last uh, thing regarding uh, transcribers. In your experience, do you think it, it is easy to use for for people? People did, uh, need any experience? I, I must say that in, in, in my case, I download it and I, I play with it and I find it that it's that it's easy to, to work. I mean, there are some things that you have to learn, but there are things that you can learn on, on yourself. I, I didn't get the impression that you needed extra help, but you know more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i trying to remember back when I first downloaded it. And I, I mean, quite honestly, I, I thought it was a bit overwhelming, right? Especially since um, not only the technology, but the tool itself was new to me, right? And so um, when I, um, you know, I opened it, you'll see 
when you download it. And, and actually, Transcribus has just created what they're calling a light version. It's a web-based version that uh, essentially simplifies what you're seeing in the app that you download. Um, and so that makes it a lot more uh, user-friendly, especially for those who are uh, getting their feet wet, right? Um, but the tool itself, the reason why it's so complicated is because you can do, besides being able to create models uh, for handwritten text recognition, you can also create digital editions out of um, uh, your manuscripts, right? And so you'll see on there, you know, that there is um, a very wide um, variety of tools that you can apply to be able to create these really robust digital editions. And also what that program does, it allows you to extract files, be able to export files from those texts to then create uh, digital editions and be able to publish them online. And so um, while the, plat you know, the platform, the interface might seem a little daunting, it's because it's a very powerful tool. Um, also, you know, besides there being a light version, um, Transcribers, folks, they also have a, a very, very rich uh, documentation available for users. Um, very clear, very straightforward, um, and uh, also very, you know, it's illustrated for you to be able to follow through with it. Um, one thing that we're trying to do with this project is um, uh, we're trying to train scholars um, who may not be able to read the English, right? We're also, we're doing... Um, uh, workshops or talleres in Spanish for that particular tool. Um, and also our objective is to try to translate some of that documentation into Spanish so we can try to open up the access to this particular technology. Okay. Albert, uh, give us uh, an overview of what deep disciplines and specialists are coming together uh, under this initiative. So to, to give our audience an idea of what are the specialists and disciplines that make up an, a project of this size? Ooh. <laughs> it's it's a it's a wide variety, right? So even within um, the the principal investigators, right? We have uh, um, Patricia, right, who's looking at archaeology, GIS system. She's particularly interested in a geography, being able to. Um, extract uh, geospatial information, right, to be able to trace um, not only the movement of um, economy or, or commerce, right, but then also disease, et cetera, right? So we have Patricia, right? And um, Javier, you know, he is a web designer. He's uh, he's most mostly focused on UX design as well as uh, the technology side of things, right? With Kelly, right, she's looking at uh, specifically indigenous groups um, as well as um, uh, a disease, right, and how disease is being understood by indigenous groups. And so she's mainly looking at it, uh, well, through also, you know, not only a historical, but also a literary lens. Um, and myself, right, I'm really interested in um, not only the technology side of things, but then I also have my, my background in information studies to be able to make these materials more widely accessible and reusable for uh, digital humanities uh, folks. But then more broadly, the collaborators are participating. We have art historians who are experts in um, now, well, uh, well, indigenous locally specifically. We have uh, historians in Puebla, right, who are very uh, focused on um, the commerce uh, aspects as well as uh, wills and testimony, uh, wills and um, legal forms. Um, we also we have a, actually quite a representation of archaeologists that are. Uh, involved in the project, um, but outside of the more, um, the, I guess the 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 
formal collaborators, we also have a wide variety of scholars who are joining us by transcribing the materials that we're using as ground truth transcriptions. And within that, we have um, people not only from throughout the world, but also throughout disciplines. Um, we have uh, obviously historians, right, do make up a good uh, uh, number in that group, but we have um, art historians, anthropologists, sociologists, um, as well as uh, folks looking at literature and theater. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of see how their perspectives are um, influencing our understanding of these materials, right? Um, and just seeing how they're engaging with the technologies to be able to uh, take their research uh, to the new level. Great. So, Albert, let's talk about the end product of this project. Um, how does, because you have explained us how mature, machine learning technologies are changing the way we are interacting with uh, primary sources, essentially. Uh, and what can we do with these possibilities and opportunities, right? But for those that don't want to uh, participate in, in, in these stages of applying these um, machine learning technologies, what is the end product? How does this end product change the way scholars, researchers, historians will interact with uh, sources? What, what would be your your general thoughts in that regard? Yeah. I think more broadly, um, and one of our main goals, right, was to be able to um, really enhance the searchability and access of Spanish colonial materials, right? So as Many of us who work with these materials, we know that the handwriting sometimes is nearly impossible, right, to be able to decipher, right? And so I think even in the field, right, you see a lot of people focusing more on the 18th century just because the handwriting in the 16th and the 17th century is not as user-friendly, right, uh, as you might say. So our goal, right, is to be able to create these models that we can then apply onto these manuscripts so that there's that very, at the very least, right, it provides you... Um, uh, it might not be perfect, but at least it provides you a rough transcription of what's in there, right? Based on these models we've created, right? And so that in and of itself, it gives scholars anywhere, right? The ability to be able to, um, at the very least, um, locate where a particular topic, person, um, theme might be coming up um, just by being able to search through that. And so our objective, right, especially you know, since we're focusing on the Benson Collections primarily, our goal is to, at the very least, have a raw transcription of these materials so that when people come to our digital collections portal, they're able to enter any keyword in there and try to get as much as they can, mainly because we have embedded these transcriptions within the search um, a database, right? Um, and so our hope is to be able to, at least for one, you know, be able to really enhance the searching capabilities of the Benson American Collection, the Fondola de Cholula, as well as the Primeros Libros uh, Corpus. Um, besides being able, right, to just help scholars just find these keywords, right, also what we're trying to do is produce these transcriptions and, and um being able to also uh, publish them, right? So that anybody uh, can download them and be able to do text analysis, maybe use it on Boyan tools or these uh, text visualization tools um, to be able to draw patterns, do some data mining. 
um, for those who might be interested in, in geography, geography, right? Um, they might be able to run uh, name entity recognition software on these uh, raw text and be able to extract names of people and places uh, to then either create um, network visualizations or maps, right? So um, that's one of our other objectives to be able to publish these out and make them uh, available in a way that um, is you reusable in digital humanities tools for those who are interested in uh, applying a digital lens uh, to these manuscripts. And so at the very least, those are our two objectives. Um, they're very ambitious, right? Um, but those are at least our, our main deliverables that we're hoping to provide for uh, scholars. And, you know, the idea is, you know, for, for um, especially for the machine learning, right, the, the ability to create these 10 text recognition uh, models. Um, one thing that we're trying to do also is we're, we're hoping to train other uh, librarians and archivists, not only in the U.S., but also in Latin America, uh, to be able to use this tool. So potentially they can apply these models onto their own collections that have been digitized and be able to also open up their Spanish colonial archives to a wider public. That would be amazing. I think that's a Great goal, and I hope that you succeed in, you know, in doing that. And uh, let's say that, you know, in our audience, we have people that are becoming interested in what you're saying, and they want to learn more or participate more in some capacity uh, in relation to the Unlocking the Colonial Archive project. Can they do so? I, I know that you mentioned that um, you're running some workshops regarding uh, transcriptions, are there ways in which people that are not formally part of the of this big project uh, can participate in any way? Of course, yes. We invite. It's it's a gigantic effort. Uh, the more the merrier. Um, we are always welcoming of new uh, contributors to the project. And one thing that we do take very seriously with this project is that we we want to give credit where credit's due. And so one of the things that we're doing right, with, especially with the publication of these transcriptions, we recognize that it takes a lot of intellectual labor to be able to decipher a lot of this handwriting. And it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, right? So one thing that we're doing when we're publishing out these um, transcriptions, and, you know, if you go uh, go to Dataverse, uh, well, data.tdl.org, you'll be able to see some of the transcriptions published there. But part of the archival record um we are incorporating uh, and crediting uh, individuals who are transcribing these materials uh, from scratch. Um, and that way they can add it to their CV and that way they know, right, that they're being recognized for uh, such monumental work. Um, so I just want to put that out there for those of you who might be interested. Um, more specifically, right, if, if you do want to join, uh, if you want to do, you want to contribute your, your expertise and your knowledge, um, there are several ways that you can do that. Number one, you can always contact me. You can always look me up online and you'll find my email um, uh, and you can just send me an email. We can get you started. Um, also, what we're doing is we are, um, we've, this is the second time that we've done it. We've uh, organized what we're calling the NEHHRC, Spanish, uh, Spanish Paleography and Digital Humanities Institute. And so that institute, what we're doing is uh, participants, we usually select 30 uh, per cohort. Uh, participants uh, receive training on both paleography 
as well as uh, digital humanities tools. Uh, it's two sessions per week. Uh, typically, it's on a Monday morning. We do a DH or digital humanities workshop on a particular tool using colonial text. And then on Fridays, we do working group sessions where uh, collaboratively, right, we, we look at particular documents with particular handwriting styles to be able to collab you know, collectively learn from each other how to read this difficult handwriting. And throughout, um, participants are creating transcriptions of manuscripts at the Benson that we have provided access through another platform called From the Page, which is a collaborative transcription platform. Um, participants uh, do the transcriptions there. We provide feedback, do corrections so they can learn the, the handwriting style a little bit more. And then ultimately, those are the ones that we republish and then we actually bring into the project. Uh, again, giving credit to all of our contributors, not only on the project website, but then also in the publications that result. So, Albert, people can participate in the Spanish Paleography and Digital Humanities Institute. My question is, um, so that means that anyone, I mean, anyone not affiliated with UT or even anyone not affili affiliated with a U.S. university can be part of this initiative? Yes, anyone. Uh, so we gave a call, um, we issued a call last September we were very, very fortunate to see that the interest was out there. Uh, we had 60 plus uh, applications and uh, the cohorts, uh, we're in the second cohort, as I mentioned, um, they have composed of scholars from uh, Peru, Mexico, all throughout the U.S., Spain, Italy, uh, as far as Japan. Um, and the in terms of who's in those cohorts, uh, usually half of them are graduate students who are learning uh, paleography. Um, and the other half are seasoned scholars who are primarily interested in di uh, learning digital humanities tools. And so we have a really good community forming where we have experts, right, in either uh, paleography or in digital humanities, and they're teaching each other um, uh, these different tools, right, of reading uh, Spanish colonial um, manuscripts. Great. And that, that's a program that lasts how many weeks or months? And, and you mentioned that it's, it takes place uh, twice a week, right? Yes, so it's uh, it's uh, technically it's a seven week institute with a week in the middle as a break, um, and so so total work is is six uh, six weeks. Um, we did one this fall. We're do, we're doing one right now. We're in the middle of one right now. We're gonna do one in the summer, and we're gonna do another one in the fall, and probably thereafter we're only gonna do one uh, every year. Um, so we will be sending out a call for the summer one, uh, probably in the next few weeks. Uh, I'll go. I'll be sure to share with you, Marcus, if you want to share with your audience, um, and that way uh, people can apply to it. But you know, even if you don't get accepted into the institute, or maybe you just want to focus on a particular manuscript, please feel free to email me. Um, one thing that we're looking for, if I can extend this invitation, is um, part of our objective is to also try to create these models for indigenous languages uh, represented in Spanish colonial materials. Um, we do have a couple of students. Uh, one that is um, working on the Pocomchi, which is a Mayan language. Um, and then we also have another student who's working on Nahuatl. But um, we welcome uh, any indigenous language experts out there who are working with um, Spanish colonial materials in those languages that might want to train um, HTR models uh, to be able to facilitate some of their work. Great, Albert. And I'm going to just to let our audience know at the end of the conversation, I will ask you to you know provide like your email address um, so people can reach out to you. And if you have other social media uh, address that you want people to reach out to you, that will 
that, that would work as well. Um, so we have spoke of two great uh, initiatives that you are part of. I want to briefly talk about the third one that I think is very interesting as well. And it's the partnership of the Lilas Benson with the College of Education and how this partnership is incorporating technology to shape class curricula and the access to history by a wider audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so our partnership with the College of Education here at the University of Texas, it's been a longstanding one. We have, a, I wanna say this, we're going on our fourth year. Um, we're relatively longstanding, right? Um, we've been working with them primarily to be able to um, bring in um, collections from the Benson into their social studies curriculum uh, courses, uh, master's courses, so that their students can create um, lesson plans, units, teaching materials related to Spanish, uh, to uh, Latin America more broadly. Um, the objective, or at least the objective of this particular program at the College of Education is to try to highlight underrepresented groups in um, world history as well as world geography curriculum, not only in Texas, but also more broadly the United States. And so part of what we're doing is um, we are bringing, uh, bringing in collection materials that are uh, focused on indigenous, Afro-descendant um, women. Um, we're bringing them into the class so that we can try to highlight these voices um, in the curriculum. And more broadly, right, we're trying to also um, uh, highlight and and make more present the role of Latin America in world history and world geography. Currently, uh, at least in Texas, uh, we can say that um, the region is very underrepresented um, in these uh, in these courses, um, and so our goal is to try to remedy that. Now, part of this, right, is um, we're also um, we're also teaching these uh, future teachers. Some of them are actually current, but they're getting their masters uh, in, in the field. Um, we are also exposing them to a variety of digital humanities projects, uh, typically through um, the typically they're projects that are based off of the materials that they're then incorporating into their teaching um, so that we can try to add uh, not only a digital lens um, to teaching these materials, but then also be able to engage um, these students uh, using digital tools and digital platforms. And so that's that's one of our goals there to be able to do that. And uh, a question regarding that initiative, that partnership, is that project focused on certain periods of Latin American history or it's open to all periods? Because I remember when I had the chance to participate in uh, in that project, um, I remember that I helped with um, incorporating primary sources from the Cold War period, from uh, organi from women uh, organizations in Brazil, I remember others uh, from uh, so primary sources from students in Uruguay. So I'm, uh, I just want to clarify if or ask you uh, if it is open to all the periods or, or do you have a main focus it is it is open to other periods um and this is you know this uh, relationship it's been evolving in terms of how we um teach these materials and and the different years that, that we've been doing it so um but yes uh, in terms of representation typically we uh we provide uh, uh materials as well as lectures that are bundled with that uh, related to the colonial period and then typically we do focus on the Cold War, considering the representation in our collection, but then also um, the interest of the student teachers. 
Um, most recently, actually, this particular year, we're, we're only focusing on the Colonial mainly because what we're also trying to do, and it's part of the same funding, uh, it's a Title VI uh, Department of Education grant that we've gotten from the U.S. federal government. Um, this year, we partnered with uh, the University of Texas uh, at El Paso to be able to create a uh, digital exhibition as well as digital humanities workshops uh, using um, materials from both uh, institutions. Um, and so this particular exhibition was focused on colonial uh, Mexico. And so this uh, particular semester, we're focusing on colonial Mexico in uh, the College of Ed uh, or College of Education partnership so that we can try to concentrate the uh, not only the resources that we've developed because of this exhibition, but then also be able to um, leverage that with the expertise of these student teachers as well as the, the faculty that are leading that class uh, to be able to then create um, resources that we can um, make more accessible to the public, but then also teachers specifically in the El Paso uh, region. Great. So it all goes back, right? It all goes back to me yeah. going to El Paso. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Basically. Um, so, Albert, uh, besides the initiatives that we have talked about in this episode, what are the other, are there other initiatives that the Benson uh, is underca- undertaking right now in, in that same, in that similar vein? Uh, and if so, can you briefly mention what are those initiatives? Yes. Um, so our office and, you know, just kind of a, a whirlwind, right? We, uh, besides uh, doing grant projects or grant works, um, we also, uh, as I mentioned before, right, we, we organize and lead a robust uh, digital scholarship fellowship program that we offer. Um, we also have a summer internship that we offer where we bring together a cohort of UT graduate and undergraduate students. Um, to be able to not only learn digital uh, digital tools, but then also uh, work with the collections. Um, another grant project that we have going on that we're actually wrapping up is with my colleague at the University of Texas Libraries, Alyssa Guzman. Uh, together for the past two and a half years, we have been um, working on the uh, internationalization of the program I mentioned previously called From the Page. So from the page, what we're trying to do is we, um, we've been working really closely with the developers of From the Page to be able to make this platform, this collaborative transcription platform into a, um, um, translate the platform into Spanish, into Portuguese. And so we're wrapping, we've wrapped up that work. Currently, what we're doing is we are looking more specifically at the workflows of how to be able to give credit to um, folks who are contributing to these uh, collaborative projects, give them credit in the archive. So one thing that we're doing is we're trying to really deconstruct or dismantle the notion of crowdsourcing, which typically paints uh, contributors, right, as a, as a faceless mass, right, that is just contributing um, their knowledge to a project. We're trying to break that apart and recognize that there's a lot of expertise that goes into these collaborative projects. And we want to do the ethical thing and be able to reflect that in the uh, archival record. And so we're working not only internally, right, within our own systems and our own collections to be able to um, provide that credit, but then we're also talking more broadly to the profession, right? Other other professionals who are doing collaborative work uh, with the public to see how their workflows are and see how we can learn from each other and provide ethical ways of attributing our collaborators. 
That's fantastic, Albert. And I mean, what I'm getting from all this conversation that we are having is that there are a lot of potential for digital humanities projects. There's a lot, there's many things that you can do with sources to create not only academic projects, but also educational and cultural ones. Do you think that that's the case? Definitely. Yeah, definitely the case. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. So basically, um, yeah, I mean, you have heard all the great uh, projects that Albert is doing and all the components that they include from, you know, recreating uh, digitally uh, geographical spaces to basically use tools to recognize handwritten material and transform that into transcribed text that can be used by scholars or people that are interested in certain periods, certain cultures, certain traditions. So Albert, let's let's conclude. I'm gonna ask uh, ask you uh, three more questions. Uh, in what other projects and academic activities are you currently involved? I mean, quite honestly, these grant projects really take a good <laughs> good chunk of my time. Um, but also, you know, in terms of my own personal um, uh, initiatives, um, you know, I recently completed my dissertation. I'm, I'm currently working on revisions on that, uh, which is focused on um, 16th century publishing in Mexico and Peru. Um, you know, a little bit more detail on that. I'm really looking at the networks um, that are feeding into the publishing hubs in both Mexico City and in Peru, trying to see how um, uh, how these these relationships uh, influence uh, preventive censorship, or essentially the, the the process of vetting manuscripts and then licensing them for eventual publication. And so I'm looking into that right now. I I'm uh, well, I'm actually I'm trying to revise my my dissertation to be able to publish it. That's that's the next goal in my mind. Um, and then also um, one thing that I'm doing also is I'm returning back to my initial interest with uh, Spanish colonial missions uh, in the American Southwest uh, and Northern New Mexico. Um, we have in our collection um, a, a rich, a very rich uh, uh, collection of Jesuit letters related to missions in the Sonora region as well as in California. And so um, I'm, I'm getting my hands uh, dirty uh, with that particular uh, <laughs> that particular collection, uh, which uh, provides a lot of insight in terms of indigenous and um, uh, friar relationships, as well as uh, the creation of, of architectural boundaries, as that's particularly my interest looking at the design of mission settlements um, and how it influenced the um, boundaries, the perceived boundaries, social, cultural, political boundaries that it created and imposed on indigenous people uh, in the uh, indigenous borderlands uh, that we know as the U.S.-Mexico border nowadays. So that's that's currently what I'm working on right now, um, which is taking a lot of my free time. <laughs> no, de definitely. You have a lot on, on your plate. And, you know, I'm looking forward to hear more from your manuscript project, and I hope that you will, you will be able to publish it. I, I think you will be able. It's a matter of time, so I'm pretty sure you will get there. Um, Albert, if uh, as I said at some point in the in the in the interview, if people are interested in contacting you, how can they do it? Yes, the most straightforward way. I live and die by my email, so you can always email me at a a palacios p a l a c i o s at 
austin.utexas, T-E-X-A-S dot E-D-U. Fascinating. Great. Um, well, Albert, I want to thank you a lot for your time today. I think I have learned a lot. I think our audience will learn a lot as well. And I think they will be also very interested in some of the initiatives that you mentioned. So once more, thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you for reaching out, Marcus. And I'm really happy to have talked to you. I, I enjoy talking about the work and hopefully um, our listeners also enjoy you know, hearing about some of the work that we're doing. Definitely, that's the goal. Well, this has been everything. My name is Marcus and I was your host for today's episode. Stay tuned for more New Books Network episodes and see you then.